How does a nurse practitioner create a life in Kenya, found a hospice, adopt orphan children, and ground her every action in the power of love? Let's talk all about Julie Boyd's incredible heartfelt journey right here on episode 343 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you, your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, and informative interviews like today's with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being a part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And here's a super special request. If you find value in the show, please consider becoming a valued patron at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. Creating over now 350 episodes incurs a lot of costs and some listeners choose to support the show in order to help me continue on this path. And I'm asking 100 regular listeners in 2021 to donate $2 a month for a year that's less than buying me a cup of coffee every month, but it really, really helps support the production of the show. So it's patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to sign up and show your love for the Nurse Keith show. And you can also show your love by referring yourself or your friends or family or colleagues to Nurse Keith Coaching for holistic career coaching for nurses and healthcare professionals. If you mention Julie Boyd or From Beyond the Skies or Episode 343 or Living Room International, you can get 15% off your first coaching package as my thank you to you for listening. The show notes for this episode where you can learn all about Julie, her family, and her incredible journey with her husband and her children will be at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 343. Now, Julie Boyd, it is such a pleasure and an honor and privilege to have you here. Your book is absolutely incredible, and we're going to talk all about it and your amazing work in Kenya. So thanks for being here. And I know, you know, you said you live in a little village, the power goes out sometimes, but this work you're doing is so important you know, we need to overcome any little glitch that happens because I want people to know about your work. So the first question I want to ask you is just starting with the basics is how nursing became part of your life, including becoming a nurse practitioner, just like how you, how healthcare became, became your, your path. From the time I was young, I wanted to go into something medical and chose nursing. And I went to um, a small liberal arts school and had just a wonderful nursing um, education experience. And during my um, junior year of nursing school, I was I had the opportunity to go on a trip, um, a mission trip to Kenya for the first time. And I walked these paths and met these beautiful people and amazing Kenyan leaders who cared so much about their community and about the suffering. And I was really moved and compelled by it. Um, And so I also encountered HIV um, in the ground and in just so much suffering and there was no access to testing or treatment yet here. And so I went back to the U S finished nursing school, started working in an HIV unit um, in Los Angeles when I 
finished school and I feel like I learned from some of the most amazing nurses how to be a nurse. And um, um, after a year of working, I started um, my nurse practitioner program, but I also continued working nights as a nurse on the HIV unit and had just a really rich experience. But my heart kept like being drawn back to the suffering that was happening um, throughout Africa, but specifically the places I had visited. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so after... um, after nurse practitioner school, then I moved to Kenya. Yeah. And you were not married at the time, right? You moved to Kenya and you, you were creating a new life on another continent. Yeah. I was a 25 year old nurse practitioner, um, single. I didn't necessarily imagine that my life would be lived, um, in Kenya over extended period of time. I said, I can go for a year or two and I can, I didn't come feeling like I'm going to come and fix what's broken. I'm not going to be able to come. And like, I, I just hoped there was some way I could be a part of working alongside of Kenyans to see the needs and to see what opportunities could, could present themselves. So it wasn't so much, let me come fix something, but it was more of there's need and opportunity. And can I come and be alongside of it? Yeah. And, and look, look what you've done and we're going to talk about what you've done. So that's, that's your nursing journey. And that's what brought you to, to Kenya. And interestingly, when I did my bachelor's program at university of Massachusetts, bachelor's in nursing, I had an opportunity to go to Jamaica and my then wife came with me and a bunch of nursing students, and we were really moved by what was happening. And we ended up, the two of us, ended up going under the, the wings of a small nonprofit that generally works in Cambodia. And we did a project in Jamaica for a bunch of years, building homes and doing outreach in the bush. So I kind of, I have a notion of what you've done, but you've, you've done, you've gone much, much deeper than we ever had the ability to do. And we eventually had to stop that project because the nonprofit leader said we really had to live there to make it really happen. And I'm sure you you understand what that means. You have to be there all the time. But we still have a family there that we support and put their kids through school. So I I get the I have like the edge of that experience, but you have that fully immersive international experience. So and I've also worked in HIV, so I, I have, you know, I have some notions of what where you've been to some extent. So first, let's talk about Living Room. It's Living Room International, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a nonprofit. So what was the purpose of creating Living Room International? And what is it doing now? And has it evolved over time? So I've been living in Kenya for five years. And um remarkable things were happening within the community. When I first came to Kenya, there was just so much stigma and fear related to the disease because there wasn't access to testing or treatment. But as those things became available and as just this group of people just reminded people that they mattered and that we wanted them to survive. We wanted them to get better. We wanted them to, and they did. It was beautiful to watch just not only what medication and nutritional support, but I just watched the power of love, like 
do these incredible things. And so the people who were so sick and so near death, they were getting better. And then they were the ones who were in the community telling others who were lying under the shade of trees that they could get better too. But as I was doing that work, there were people who with advanced cancers, people with TB and HIV, who they really needed some sort of inpatient hospice, not necessarily to die, but to have a place where it would be a refuge for them. And so we started living room. Um, there was a small group of us who had been in community doing HIV work. And so we started it and we named it Kimbilio Hospice, um, which means refuge in Swahili. Um, and it's under the organization of living room um, where we founded it in Kenya, but also have um, a 501c3 in the U.S. to help with some of the funding of it. And so we started small. We started with two orphaned children who both were HIV positive. And honestly, like it wasn't with the notion that we were going to start something big. It was just two kids in front of us who were severely malnourished and needed care. And so we began to care for them. And we, one of them, um, her name was Flovia. She was two years old at the time and she came back to life and, um, Felix was a year old and he didn't. And I feel like that's actually a picture of what living room is, is it's not always about what the outcome of whether they're going to survive or whether they're going to pass, but that it's the love that we put into it. It's giving holistic care and really trying to do it with quality and excellence and, um, and then leaving outcomes out, you know, they're not inside our control, but believing that it matters and these kids and all who come into our doors that they matter deeply. Right. And, and of course the, the outcome we all truly want for our patients, if it's ever possible is healing, right. And recovery and, and, uh, cure or remission if possible, but we know that's not always possible. And that's where the hospice aspect of living room comes into play, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's been incredible because there's been many people who've come into our doors who really were, it felt like they were hours to days away from death. And then with the right care and the mm. right people around them, the right medications, we have watched them come back to life. And we, we celebrate that and we feel those victories, but there's also the moments where, the person comes in and it's our hard privilege to care for them during their last days or moments and, and really believing that it's sacred work and that it matters and that it's not a failure if someone dies, but it's just this, it's hard, but it's an opportunity for us to remind them that they're not alone, remind them that they're loved and, and we do what we can. Right. An opportunity. And you've seized this opportunity for years now, and we're going to talk about all the different things that you've done to dive deep into the life of children and the communities there. And what I want to ask is: is how has your how have your experiences in Kenya informed how you look at global health, and what does it mean to you? to truly in the deepest, deepest sense to be involved in the community of people who do this kind of work all around the world? Well, I've been really privileged to work with amazing people um, who, who care about who care about humanity, who care about the people around us. Um, Kenyans mm -hmm. who are just 
generous and, and like know how to care for other people. But then there's other, been so many other people who've walked the journey alongside of us too. And I feel like, um, you know, often there's so much disparity in health inequities and to be a part of teams where we just continue to push the boundaries, I think, of what people say should be done or could be done because we want to know, you know, really why, <laughs> why not um, have health access for people everywhere. And I feel like that's, you know, what we're working towards and, um, and with one person at a time. And then as the programs grow, just trying to put things in place that allow for people to have the best care that can be provided. Absolutely. And when we're trying to provide the best care that can be provided, especially in places like Kenya, where maybe that care didn't exist or it existed in a, in a manner in which we knew it could be better, right? Whether it's helping someone die a dignified death or curing them or sending them into remission from a disease like TB or HIV or cancer, where do you see the, the concept of social justice coming into this conversation? And what does it mean when we talk about healthcare and social justice in the same sentence? So I think that I believe that everyone should have access to healthcare and it shouldn't like your life expectancy shouldn't be determined by your geographical location of where you were born. Um, and I think that anytime that there's disparity within that, that I think that we need to be working harder um, to make sure that there's access for care, access for healthcare. Um, so I, to me, it, it absolutely is a justice issue if people are dying of preventable and treatable diseases. Um, and so I feel like it's not, it's not, it's not the one person's responsibility, but I feel like it's just the, um, as a global health people like that, that it should be something that we are always working towards. And I'm not really totally sure how to articulate that well, but I just feel like, um, You're doing great. <laughs> I, just, I feel like justice that inequities and health disparities, that that's an justice issue as much as anything. So Mm -hmm. And you're aware as well as I am being, being American that there are plenty of disparities here and we could enumerate them for an hour on this podcast without even having to think about what we're going to say because sure. we know it's, it's so blatant here. However, how does it feel to you as, as a mom, as a nurse, as a healthcare provider, as a community leader? As, a, as an activist, a healthcare activist, I guess you could say, the, the great disparities between, let's say, the US or Europe or other you know, industrialized countries and a place like Kenya, where the disparities are, I mean, it's hard to even describe the breadth and depth of disparities. So what happens for you in your heart? Because I know you're a very heart-centered person obvious from your book, which we'll talk about. What do you feel when an encounter in yourself, when you, when you witness this firsthand, which you've been doing for so many years? So I, I feel the heartbreak of it. I feel the um, disappointment mm -hmm. that it could be different. 
And then I usually feel like a fire (laughs) in my gut that there could be a better way or there is a better way. And again, it's not always that I feel like it's my responsibility, but I want to be a part of working around others where we're always trying to push for for better care, for better opportunities for... um, Well, I know you said that you know, it's not your responsibility and it's not. And also all of us are responsible at the same time. Right. So, but when you talk about that fire, like the fire in your belly to do something, which obviously you've, you've heated that call in a really, really big way. Um, what does it mean to you when we take responsibility? Cause you have, you've taken, you've taken the situation by the horns and decided to really make something happen. So what does it mean when a person like yourself humbly in, in a, in a, in a way grounded in love, which you talk about a lot in your book, right? What does it mean to you when you take that deep dive into a community and you dedicate yourself to it, you know, heart and soul and every waking and sleeping moment of your life, what is it like to, to shoulder that, you know, whatever it is you're shouldering, what's your personal experience like in that regard? Well, I think one of the wonderful things that has happened for me is that I, I was allowed to be received into a community where I'm welcomed, even though I'm an, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm an outsider, but they welcomed me like I belonged. And it has Mm -hmm. taught me so much about humility and hospitality and generosity. Um, And I think anytime, well, I mean, in, in general, I think that we need to be always listening and learning and paying attention and willing for even our plans to be interrupted, to notice what the needs are around us Um, and not always to be overwhelmed by them, but to like pay attention because I think there are opportunities to respond and not, it's not been just me responding, but being a part of a community where we're trying to notice together so that then, you know, it's not that we have all the answers or that everything gets fixed, but it's like that there are things that we can do. And that's what we're going to try. And, and when I say try, I mean, like, it's not flippant, there's intention, there's planning, there's concern and care, but it's not that we always know what the outcomes are going to be as we begin the process. That's true. That's true. And you mentioned humility, hospitality, and I always notice that the word hospital is within the word hospitality, just saying, um, generosity and love is like a huge piece of this for you. You're, you're a faith based person. Your faith in God and is, is really enormous for you. And your, your Christian faith is really important to you. And there's, there's someone you describe in your book who says something to you that becomes kind of a, a guiding principle about about love and what is the thing that I think it was a gentleman what is it that he said to you that became one of your guiding principles that you describe in the book from beyond the skies so I had been living in Kenya for about four months and under the shade Mm -hmm. of a tree there was a man who was on the verge of dying and 
I didn't know that there was HIV testing and treatment 10 miles away. And, and yet, uh, I said, let's try, let's, let's, there's this clinic I've heard of. I don't know if it's going to be worth the effort to try to get there. Cause we didn't really have vehicles. And so it was like, can we get there? But we tried and we got, we arrived at this clinic, a one room place on a Friday morning. And I'll just never forget this 70 year old white gentleman who was standing at the door with the patient file in hand. And he introduced himself to me as Joe and he said, I'd like to show you something, you know, after he asked me, what are you doing here in the middle of nowhere? And I told him, well, I live nearby and I'm tired of watching people needlessly die. And he said, well, let me show you something. And so he took me into a room filled with HIV medications and there were test kits and nutritional support. And it was just this moment where I was so overwhelmed because I didn't know it was going to be there. And I saw hope and I started to cry. And he said, I know exactly how you feel. And in that moment, I just realized like what I had been dreaming for the community or what I thought was going to be possible was so much less than what was. And so that, that older gentleman, his name is Dr. Joe Mamlin. And he started this incredible HIV program and it's now serving thousands and thousands of people in Western Kenya. Um, but I didn't know I was going to meet him on that Friday morning. And over time, he became a mentor and a friend and just this remarkable doctor and this remarkable human being who could pay attention to the patient in front of him in a way that it was like, you know, it was his brother or sister, he would say, you know, it's like, it's not, I'm just not going to treat him like it, like she is my mother. She can be my mother so I can love her in tangible ways. And he just, he did it just remarkably and humble and so laser focused, but he would often say when I would come um, after that, I would come each Friday morning to sit beside him and to learn alongside him and to bring um, patients who needed testing and treatment eventually. And he would say, if we ever write a book, we'd call it only love matters. And that's the phrase that you were referring to. Sorry for the long intro into that, but only love matters is great intro. Only love matters is just this phrase that he said it so often, but it resonates like so deeply within me that there's, I think love requires, you know, it's not just a fluffy thing. Like it requires your attention. It requires commitment requires excellence and um and it requires you know paying attention to the person in front of you knowing that they're valuable and that like you know we want certain outcomes but whether those come or not that we're going to give them our best and we're going to give them our attention right right and that notion of only love mattering that can happen in rural Kenya. It can happen in Santa Barbara. It can happen in St. Louis. It can happen in Port-au-Prince, right? It can happen anywhere, right? And isn't there a question that you ask yourself, am I, or am I conflating this? It's something like, what does it look like to love more in this situation? Isn't that, is that close to the question? Yeah. So the question that our team that we often ask is what does it look like to love in this situation? And then little by little, we try to figure out what that is and do it. That's great. What does it look like to love in this situation? And I'm, it's really affected me in a really profound way reading your book. 
from beyond the skies. And I'm, I'm starting to remind myself to ask myself that question. And, you know, we're human, so we can't always remember, <laughs> you know, we get caught up in whatever it is that's going on for us. We're frustrated, we're angry, we're irritable, we haven't eaten or whatever. Someone, someone says something that we take personally. And, but if we can come back to a question like that, even if we make up our own question, it can be something akin to that, whatever fits with our way of thinking. But I just wanted you to know that that's really had a, had an impact on me. And uh, that's a big piece I'm taking away from your book and the work that you do. So before we take a break, I just wanted to ask you, in terms of Living Room International, and people can go to livingroominternational.org, it's a 501c3 based in the US, so people can make donations, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, and they can go to the website and learn about the hospice and learn about the work you've been doing and are continuing to do, and they can make a donation if they'd like to. And just spontaneously right now, I just want to offer that if three people listening would like to make a $100 donation to Living Room International, they can let me know that they've done that and then they can have an hour of coaching with me at any time they would like or they can gift that hour to somebody else if they know someone else who'd like some kind of career holistic life and career coaching so if three people listening to this episode would like to donate a hundred dollars to living room international you can receive an, an hour of coaching in return for making that donation to Julie and her work. So just wanted to say that before the break. So Julie, when we come back, I want to talk about the book and I want to talk about your children and your journey as what you call a medical mom. And I'd like to talk about sickle cell disease because that's an enormous part of your journey as a mom. So does that sound like a good plan for the second half? Yes. It's great. Great. Okay. So we'll be right back for the second half of episode 343 of The Nurse Keith Show. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. 
So welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember the show notes are going to be located at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 343. We're here again with the amazing Julie Boyd, nurse practitioner living in Kenya, who's written a book called From Beyond the Skies, which I cannot recommend more highly. And I also recommend that you think about visiting fronbeyondtheskies.com to learn about the book and Julie's work and livingroominternational.org. And I want to reiterate what I said before the break, that if you're one of three people who'd like to donate $100 to Living Room International, just send me a confirmation that you've done so and you can have an hour of coaching with me or even gift that hour to another person. It's wholly transferable to someone else. So three people, if you would like to donate to Living Room International, please consider doing so. So Julie, before the break, we are talking about your work. We are talking about the role of love and your faith in the work that you do and this amazing man, Joe, the doctor who you met, who taught you this concept of, you know, only love matters. Like that's, that's the center. That's like the pillar of everything. And we talked about that question of what does it look like to love in this situation, which is a way that many of us could look at anything in our lives, not even our work as nurses. And I know living room doesn't come to fix anything right? And you talk about the concept of it meaning coming alongside of, not fixing. And at the same time, you and your husband, your husband's name is? Titus. Titus, that's right. Sorry, I just slipped my mind. So you and Titus made this decision to adopt a family of children whose mother had died and it's an incredible story. It is such a moving story and it could bring any reader to tears. And you discover that several of these children have sickle cell disease and sickle cell is bad enough when you live in the United States. And when you live in Kenya, Julie, what does it mean when a child is diagnosed with sickle cell, let's say as compared to the United States? So first of all, it's rare to even get the diagnosis. So many of the children, yeah, many of the children die before they even get the diagnosis because we don't have routine screening. So it's one of the things that really we're pushing that that would be available Um, because there's high incidence, Mm -hmm. like 75% of the global population living with sickle cell disease are in Africa. And yet the simple treatments, I mean, there's nothing simple about sickle cell disease, but simple treatments like penicillin and hydroxyurea and some of the medications that they're not super expensive, but they're not necessarily available or accessible. And so there's kids who don't get access to them, but then even those who do like just the amount of suffering and pain and it's hard, it's hard to get access to treatment. It's hard to um, get relief from the pain. So, you know, I'm a hospice nurse um, and I have access to morphine, but when these kids came into our lives and I'm so, so blessed that they did, but when their pain was so severe, you know, like I'm a mom who had access to it and it was still so hard. And I just so often have thought about 
my neighbors and these people further, you know, outside of our community who have sickle cell disease and who struggle with it and just the amount of suffering and the unknown of what's going to come next uh, as the parents, but also the amount of pain and suffering for the child to not have relief from that. Just it's, it's really horrific. So the estimate is that between 50 to 90% of children with sickle cell disease die by the age of five um, here, opposed to in the U.S. where it's, it's mid-40s, it's the life expectancy. And so it's a huge disparity that, that I believe can be changed, but it's going to require a lot of attention and focus. And I think the Ministry of Health making it a priority and then people just fighting, beginning to really fight for these kids and their families. Mm. 40 year life difference in life expectancy between Kenya and the United States with sickle cell. And for anyone listening who's not familiar with sickle cell, or maybe they've heard of it, but they don't entirely understand the mechanism and what happens physiologically. Can you briefly describe what, what happens in sickle cell and why it's so painful, for instance? Sure. So, I mean, it's a genetic blood disorder that causes mm-hmm. the red blood cells to get misshapen. And so the normally um, red blood cells last 90 to 120 days, but with kids or people living with sickle cell disease, they last about 10 to 20 days. And so they experience anemia, but also as these cells get misshapen, they begin to clog in the smaller arteries and really can go anywhere and cause much damage, but also severe pain. Mm -hmm. And I know that there can be a lot of um, pain in the extremities, right? With the, in the little in the capillaries because of the the shape of the cells and they're not they're not pliable because red blood cells usually can like squeeze through all these little spaces right, right? Yes. and they they're that little they have that concave shape on either side and they can kind of slide through so with the sickle they're they're misshapen but what happens in the organs like where does it happen in the organs and other parts of the body like what are some of the main areas where the suffering is is most um either life-threatening or painful well it causes damage throughout um it can cause Mm -hmm. strokes it can cause um the you can have sequestration of the blood within the spleen and that can be life-threatening any fever is is life-threatening potentially because of sepsis their children with sickle cell are really susceptible to sepsis Um, it causes acute chest syndrome. I mean, it can, there's any number of complications that are all horrible. <laughs> right. And, and I know from patients I've had over the years, it's extremely painful. And it is more common in people of African or African American descent, correct? Correct. And is it, is it common in other nationalities or or ethnic heritage heritages as well it can all it also it does exist in other communities um mediterranean areas sometimes within hispanic mm-hmm. populations um but like mm-hmm. i said about 75 to 80 percent of the global population living with the disease are actually on the continent of africa right and many many in kenya obviously from your experience yeah. Okay. So the hurdles are treatment, but the other hurdle, the first hurdle is actually 
getting diagnosed, right? Getting screened and diagnosed. And when you adopted how many children? So there's eight brothers and sisters, and there's five who have moved into our home. And we have different mm-hmm. levels of adoption and guardianship, but they all are part of our family at this point. Yeah. And in the book, you talk about the whole process of adopting them and the hurdles you faced just trying to adopt the children and the questions and the the people who helped you and the people who were who were obstacles. You tell some stories about some um I guess you'd call them officials. One particular man I remember who, I mean, you were reduced to tears a number of times, wondering if he was the one who was going to stop the whole process in its tracks. And that was very painful <laughs> to read and I'm sure more painful uh, by far to experience. And, you know, just walking this journey with you in the book is just incredible. And the determination of you and Titus and Titus is just, he was right there with you from the very first moment, this beautiful man and making these decisions to like, of course, we're going to do this. Right. And you, you express such love for him and adoration and respect for him in terms of the way that he stepped up. Like he was like, of course, we're going to do this. What else would we do? Right. And I kind of feel like that's one of the undercurrents of your book. It's it's sort of like, of course, like what else, what else would we do in this situation? And I want to ask you, of course, because this is a huge piece of the of the puzzle here, is you make a decision to seek advanced, well, advanced for Kenya treatment in your children, and you bring them to the United States for a bone marrow transplant because one of the sisters, I forget her name, um, um, is the match for several of the children. And what was her name? So Sharon was a match for our two boys. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. right. That's right. And you bring them to the United States and there are these incredible angels along the way who put your family up and really step up in ways that you have to read the book to really get the the gist of what they truly did to to be your friends and become like your family in yeah. it was California correct yeah yes. and how was that for you to make the decision to to basically use your relative privilege to bring these children to the US and give them the treatment, the potentially life-saving treatment that you know you could access by hook or crook. And was that, how was that for you to realize that these children were going to have an opportunity that so many others would not? What, what, what process did you have to go through to make that decision? Well, maybe I can start by saying that three of the kids have sickle cell disease and only two of them had a match. And so it wasn't just like a larger community. How do I make a decision for my kids? It was deciding to do bone marrow transplants for two children and knowing the third would continue to struggle Mm -hmm. and, you know, like really struggle with the disease. So it was, um, in some ways it was something that I couldn't fully think through at that time, I think I, the doctors in the U S had, um, had really advised us that if there's a chance that you have a a sibling match donor, like we really recommend you doing the treatment. And, and when we had that for two and not the third, like 
I mean, that's so hard. And yet it, it mm. felt like, yeah. um, we have to fight for these two and not that we're not going to fight for the third, but we're going to focus on getting a cure for these two. And then we'll come back and we'll continue to care and we'll continue to find our way. And I think that, you know, there's only so much heart space you have and you allow your heart to keep stretching and it will more and more. But I feel like at the time that we got a diagnosis and then we got to our match and the third is not, or in the larger community doesn't have access to this. Like my heart could only like focus on how do we get the cure for these two? And that's, that's what I could do at that time. Right. And the word that comes up for me around you and Titus and this particular process you engaged in was that you were fierce. Like it was like mother bear and father bear, like fierce, like you're, you're, I'm starting to tear up a little, like your, your claws and teeth were like, you were like, there was nothing going to stand in our way because these are our children and you, you adopted them and they were, it was like you had birthed them and your fierceness was, I mean, there was nothing you, you just wouldn't stop. And that fierceness is, is something that I think any parent can understand. And speaking of which then, um, being a medical mom, like all of a sudden you were a medical mom, like you had children who you would, you would give your life for, right. To give them whatever they needed to survive and thrive and live as long as possible. How has being a medical mom impacted your role and the way you think about being a nurse and a healthcare professional? Cause it must have an enormous impact. I want to actually start by going back to what you're talking about being fierce. So I feel like I have taken care of so many dying mamas who, as they were dying, their one request was make sure my kids are okay. Make sure my kids are taken care of. And I felt that I Mm -hmm. heard their voices, even though I didn't know now my children's mother, I didn't, I wasn't with her when she died, but I could hear the voices of all these mamas who I've cared for within my head and within my heart. And it's, it, it was just this, I'm going to fight for these kids with all of the imperfect love that I have and give it all I've got. And that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Titus and I did, but I feel like there's so many of my patients who've been my greatest teachers who are the voices inside of me who've led me in that. Um, mm. I don't remember your next question, but I feel like that's an important oh, piece of okay. like where that fierceness I think comes from is like, I did have one, I have one biological daughter and I would want if, if she was ever in the situation that our other kids were in, I would want someone to fight for her. Like we chose to fight for them. Mm -hmm. So there were like those multiple things like within me, um, really pushing. And then I think, you know, there is this faith element that sometimes within faith, we want it to be so nice and neat and clear and and there's not a struggle. There's not the hard part of the suffering, but, um, I just, I felt it so deeply and yet, um, we stayed in it and we did it day after day after day. You did, you really did. And you continue to. And so the other part of that compound question, sorry, was what, what does it mean to be a medical mom and to be on that other side of the stethoscope, you know, and, and be the one who is sitting there fighting for your, 
your child? And how has that changed your perception of being a healthcare provider? Well, I mean, I think there was 15 years of nursing experience that was within me. Mm-hmm. There was the medical knowledge that was within me, but there was a level, mm-hmm. level of vulnerability that I've, you know, I've never experienced before to that depth. And there mm-hmm. was a day when Ryan, um, our youngest who had gone through transplant had terrible complications in in the Mm -hmm. ICU. And I just felt like I need to go back and apologize to every parent I've taken care of because I didn't Mm -hmm. know how much it could hurt. You know, like I thought I did, but like, it's just that my heart was enlarged in a way as it was like also broken by how close we came to death Mm -hmm. and how much I wanted him to live and wasn't certain that that was going to be our outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. And it must have had, it must have continued to have a profound impact when you encounter parents now in at living room and you either need to have the really hard conversations or you just need to sit with them either in their grief or their worry or whatever is going on for them. And is that where your faith comes in, where you just think, well, how can I how can I love in this situation? Is that what you do in those moments as a nurse, as a provider? Well, I think that going through the two transplants, like I didn't, I didn't know how much trauma it was going to cause. I didn't know that in coming back to mm-hmm. Kenya, how, how changed I was going to be from the experience. I mean, I, I, I often say that I don't believe like my child's suffering was to teach me a lesson, but a side effect has certainly been the amount of compassion that I now feel in a unique way. And so we do take care of many children with cancer and I sit alongside of these parents and I don't, there's not always words. Sometimes there needs to be a conversation, but I just, I feel it different. And it hasn't, thankfully it hasn't like um, stripped my ability to be with them. I feel like it's just deepened it. Um, and, and it's really allowed me to notice notice things in a different way than I did before and to just be really um I think thoughtful about my communication and my questions and um, some of those kinds of things mm-hmm. yeah I just the the life-changing aspect of what you've been through and continue to the work you continue to do with living room and you know having children living in Kenya at the lessons must just come fast and furious sometimes. And you just, it sounds like you just kind of ride the waves and you do what you need to do every, every day. Don't you? We try. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And let's, in terms of Titus, um, tell us a little bit about Titus, like whatever you're comfortable telling us about where he's from and, um, and what, what his role is within, you know, the whole living room, world and community. So Titus is Kenyan and he grew up about 12 miles away from the village where living room is. And I met him eight years Mm -hmm. into living in Kenya. And he's just this remarkable man who he cares about people. He's quiet, but he's always paying attention. And um, he, his background is in banking and finance, but has become a part of our business team of working towards sustainability within our work. And um, I also, I mean, I just feel like um, 
the way that he has loved me and our kids, it's been it's been the greatest gift. And to watch him in the middle of suffering, because his background isn't medical, but the way that he was willing to stay present in it and to just keep fighting and keep being available was was quite um, was one of the more beautiful things I've ever seen. Yes. And you paint you paint such a beautiful picture of him. Um, like I was saying earlier, like his his just embracing of these children and the 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 fight ahead and going to the states and doing everything you did for the transplants. He was he was just there. And he seems like he's really, really a rock and anchor for you, the way you describe him and your relationship and the ways in which he shows up over and over and over and over again. He for sounds sure. like a beautiful person. He is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because when we came to the U.S., like that's not his home, um, but he was willing to step mm-hmm. outside of the places that were comfortable for him, um, even culturally, to be able to do what was needed for our kids. Yeah. And so it's you and Titus and then Sharon, Alice, Ella, Jeffrey, and Ryan. So that's the that's the family. Yeah. And the story is just incredible. And how long has From Beyond the Skies been out? When was it published? So the print version will actually come out September 28th. Um, the ebook and audiobook have been out for the last two to three months. So. Oh, okay. So I, I got a copy before it was actually released. And yeah. we're recording this right near, actually, it comes out a week from today. We're recording this on September 21st, 2021. So by the time this recording comes out, the book from Beyond the Skies, the print version will have been out maybe about a week or 10 days. <laughs> so you're getting a very early preview of the book, listening to this podcast episode. And the book is out and I highly recommend buying it, buying it for other people. Um, the audiobook, the ebook, the print book. I have a print copy right here and it's it's absolutely oh, it's incredible. And there's a few people I'm going to buy copies for who I think will really appreciate this, including my niece who's done work in southern Sudan and she married a man from Haiti and she adopted her stepdaughter um, um, who's from Haiti and they live in Boston now. And my gr- other great niece is three years old, just a couple days ago. And she's half Jewish American and half Haitian. And she's a beautiful child. And I'm actually going to see them very soon. So I have that connection with that, that kind of family from multiple countries. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing to have in one's family. It's a really lovely, expansive way of looking at the world. And I'm just curious, um, do you have another book cooking in your heart? Is there more of this story to tell? Yeah, I'm actually um, just beginning to think and write about, um, Mm. I want to write about community and belonging. Um, I've recently Mm -hmm. been really moved by um, when I'm in the hospice to watch the way our patients know that it belongs to them and that they're loved and accepted in that place. And, and I just feel like there's so many stories that I, I would like to share about that journey. And, and I feel like it's a universal thing that we all long and need community um, long for it and need it. And just this sense of what belonging can look like. And not that it's all um, it's not easy, but it's uh, 
it's mm-hmm. it can be really beautiful. That's wonderful. And we'll definitely have you back when that next book is is on its way to the public so that people can read more of your story and do this incredibly inspirational story of faith and love and family and and just embracing the unknown and frightening things that that present themselves to us. And I think a lot of parents, of course, could relate to the story from Beyond the Skies and that fierceness we talked about, you know, that that kind of fierce love that I feel for my son and, you know, and so many, you know, any parent will feel when their child is threatened or something has come in, you know, has kind of come into their field and they have to figure out how are you going to tackle this together as a family. Um, one last question. Do people ever come from the States or other countries and volunteer at Living Room International? Is that possible? Yes, we do have volunteers that come. Yes. Uh, obviously, we've taken a break over the last year and a half because of COVID. Um, yes. But yeah. um, but we're hopeful that as, again, back to disparities, as vaccinations are available um, more within Kenya and throughout the world, that there will be opportunities for people to come again. Great. That would definitely, that is going on my list of things to 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 consider doing when the opportunity presents itself. And we didn't touch on the pandemic. Um, I'm sure it's been quite a journey for you. And I'm sure that that the whole notion of disparities around vaccinations and and treatment of COVID is would be a whole nother conversation. But let's just say that it's a reality, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. That disparity. Yeah. So much. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yes, so much. And Julie, this this has been so wonderful. And we could delve now into another hour talking about COVID and more disparities and and all the other work that you do, I'm sure, and and ways in which you're you're you and Titus have touched so many people and everyone at Living Room. But we're gonna have to leave it there for now. But I just want to thank you so much. And I wanna again encourage people to go to livingroominternational.org to make donations and learn about Living Room and From Beyond the Skies to learn about the book and to purchase books. And again, three people can give $100 livingroominternational.org and receive an hour of coaching for me as a gift for supporting Julie's work. So I just want to encourage everyone. And Julie Voigt, thank you so much. You are so amazing. You're one of the most amazing people I've encountered. And thank you for doing this incredible work. Thank you for having me. It's really my privilege. (laughs) Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this incredibly inspirational episode with Julie Boyd of Living Room International. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 343. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. I hope you'll take advantage of my offer and make a donation to Living Room, even if it's five or $10, donate anything and take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional development, whether it's volunteering, making a donation, or just bringing more love to the table when you're faced with a situation that that calls for more love. And again, please consider becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. The Nurse Keith Show is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. It is really one of the largest and fastest growing, amazing 
collection of authoritative, high-quality podcasts about healthcare, medicine, and beyond. So please check them out. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. I'm always grateful to Mark and Rob for keeping everything moving in the correct direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch, focus on love at every moment you can. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the amazing Julie Boyd bidding you adieu from Kip Karen Kenya. Kip Karen Kenya. Thank you again, Julie. This has been such an honor. And thank you to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the flip side. <laughs>